Well, as far as our study of chapter 22 goes, last week um, we tried to flesh out uh, the theoretical but also practical outworkings of several important concepts and uh, distinctions that pertain to worship and the regulative principle. First, we considered a little bit more in depth the categories of natural worship and instituted worship. Natural and instituted worship. Closely related to that, we saw the distinction between natural law and positive law. Natural law and positive law. Natural worship, we saw, is that worship of God which is revealed in nature. Again, paragraph one, the light of nature shows that there is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all, is just, good, and doth good, good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart, with all the soul, and with all the might. Okay, that's revealed in nature. It's obvious from nature. Instituted worship is that worship of God which is governed and regulated by positive law as revealed in the Word of God. And this instituted worship is the only acceptable worship to God now. Paragraph 1 continues, but the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will, we could say positive law, that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan, under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. Now, as we saw last week, natural and instituted worship are still related, okay? They're, they're, they're distinct concepts, um, but we don't really separate them. Um, William Ames says, Instituted worship is the means ordained by the will of God to exercise and further natural worship. Instituted worship is the means ordained by the will of God to exercise and further natural worship. So in a sense, on the Lord's Day, when we gather, it's instituted worship because it's governed by the Word of God, but it's also the exercise of our natural worship as well. Um, we're not doing something other than what we were created to, um, as though if you were just worshiping God apart from His, his Word, well, you're, you're doing what you're naturally created to, we're doing something we're super... No, we're doing what we are created to as His creatures, but we're doing it in the way that He has specifically guided us to do by His Word. In fact, if you look at all the things that are aspects of natural worship that are mentioned in paragraph 1... Um, they're all things that we do on the Lord's Day. It says that the light of nature reveals that God is, quote, to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, served with all the heart, with all the soul, and with all the mind. That's exactly what we do in instituted worship on the Lord's Day. So we distinguish them, but we don't really separate them, okay? Next, we considered the distinction between an element and a circumstance of worship. As I said last week, an element of worship is something that is commanded by God, it is instituted by Him, while a circumstance is something which attends an element. Um, you can't have an element without circumstances, um, just as like you can't walk somewhere without there being circumstances of where you're walking, like the location, there are always circumstances attending it. However, they are not essential to it, okay? Okay? They are not essential to an element. 
For example, we said that dipping or immersion is essential to baptism, such that there is no baptism if one has not been immersed. And yet, whether the water be salt water or fresh water, an ocean or a lake or a river, a pool, none of that has been instituted by God, and none of it is essential to baptism. If it were, God would have told us. He doesn't not reveal to you things that are necessary to worship Him, right? And so all those things would be circumstances. Next, we considered the question of what governs circumstances. Um, Obviously, if they're not instituted by God, that doesn't mean we can do whatever we want, right? There there is something to guide us. There is a bit of freedom as well, um, but it's not entirely without guidance from God. And our confession says that these circumstances are governed namely by the light of nature and Christian prudence. The light of nature and Christian prudence. With the light of nature, we saw that although the term can be very broad in what it refers to, as the confession uses it in that part, um, referring to worship in chapter 1, it really refers to it more broadly to all natural knowledge and natural law in general right? Here we said that, uh, or I'm sorry, for example, it has the accompanying phrase that these circumstances are, quote, common to human actions and societies. Common to human actions and societies. So what time should a congregation meet for worship? Well, here the answer is partly informed by what is common to human actions and societies. Most human actions are done during the daytime or perhaps the evening, but certainly not at three in the morning, right? Work, recreation, chores, those things are typically done within a certain window of time. Well, it's actually grounded in nature. God created us to live during the daytime. Not only can we not see, we're not bats that can echolocate things, but it's just how God has created the world. And so humans typically don't do things unless they have to for some reason, right? Um, uh, Later than that, and that's common to human actions and societies, right? Um, So should we meet in the day or in the evening? If we meet in the day then, right, we say we're not going to meet at two, um, what time then should we meet? At dawn? At first light? Well, some people like that, I guess. Do humans normally begin public gatherings by that time? Perhaps some people are up, right? You have the Rubens of the world who are all very diligent or something like that. Um, But typically, we don't have public gatherings at first light. Typically, we allow for more time, and they're all very practical, kind of natural reasons. You can't jump out of bed and go straight into something. You probably have to travel. That's a, nat- that's a law of nature. There's distance between you. You have to wash because you need to brush your teeth. That's natural. You really should, right? You need to eat food. That's natural. All those things typically mean that most public gatherings, I would say, are between, if they're going to begin in the daytime, between probably 9 or 10, maybe 8 as well for business, Right? That's the light of nature. As far as Christian prudence, it is related to the light of nature because the light of nature um, is related to reason, but prudence is defined historically as right reason applied to action. Right reason applied to action. 
You want to really impress people. So they really think you have a great knowledge of medieval Latin. You just say, well, prudence is recta ratio agibilio, right? Recta ratio agibilio. It's right reason to doing, to action. With prudence, we saw that it really takes uh, into account special circumstances, special circumstances. There are some things that are common to human actions in societies, such as really rare that people are having public gatherings um, at 9 or 10, but there might be special circumstances and when they do, and Christian prudence takes that into account. For example, this last week here, we saw kind of an example of this. We didn't really have anything here, but more towards Van and all that, they had tornadoes touching down, right? That's a special circumstance, and although they don't happen every day, you probably shouldn't be having a public gathering waiting for the F5 to come and take you all to Jesus, right? That's not prudent. You're not taking into consideration special circumstances. Well, I'd like us to talk today and consider what I kind of said last week as I ended, namely the preventing and guarding against a circumstance, maybe not officially in language, but becoming an element by taking on a life of its own. As I said last week, even in reform circles, um, yeah, today a lot, I think, there can be not a mega, right, not a mega undoing of the regulative principle, but in some ways an undoing of the regulative principle by saying, well, I'm not introducing a new element. This is not an element, this is merely a circumstance. That happens, and you'll hear, hear that kind of argument used for all kinds of things. I would say that a lot of the problems that we see uh, in modern evangelical worship, without trying to just pick on people, those are really just circumstances gone wild. Circumstances that started off small, and then they kind of took on a life of their own such that maybe we don't call them that, but they really became elements in their own right. Perhaps you've heard the phrase, the tail wags the dog. The tail wags the dog. Do they have anything like that in Spanish? You're, okay, tell me later. Um, the tail wags the dog. Normally, the dog wags the tail, right? It's kind of a funny image to imagine a tail not moving and the rest of the dog kind of going back and forth. It speaks of disorder, it speaks of uh, something that should normally be governed by something else actually taking on the role of, of what is governing. For example, turning lights down, right? Or even off during worship except for the stage. I guess perhaps the argument could be, well, God has commanded us to sing. Singing is often accompanied by music. And in modern places where music is listened to in public gatherings, the lights are often turned down, aren't they? That's true, actually, in music venues. Perhaps they could even argue, well, it's actually common to human actions in societies. If you go to music venues, that's common. They turn the lights down. So why can't we do that here? Well, we could say many things. Why? It's common also to, cover, uh, to, to have a cover charge. Uh, it's common to go crowd surfing, sing, uh, surfing in many places. It's common to be able to buy a beer at a concert. We're, we're not going to do all those things. What you're really doing is importing the whole other thing and just saying, like, 
let's squeeze this through the eye of, of, of the circumstance needle, right? And so you, you really want to not do that. Well, how do we prevent that kind of thing from happening? What principles should guide us and give us wisdom um, to, to ask very practical questions? Should we do this or not, right? Um, the Reformed answer would probably be twofold. One of them is the reason for the other, okay? The first is simplicity of worship, simplicity of worship. The Reformed, uh, particularly, I, probably the most plain were the New England Puritans. They were known for keeping things very plain and simple. Their meeting house, and no, notice it's, it's not a church, it's the meeting house. It's also where you had your other meetings, right? If you had like a town meeting, it would be at the meeting house. Um, it was very simple and plain. It served all the basic needs you would have, and it was dignified, but it was kept simple. That's, that's very reformed, right? The reason behind the simplicity of worship is the principle of the spirituality of worship or the spiritual nature of worship. The Reformed argue that because worship was spiritual, therefore, <clears throat> excuse me, it ought to be outwardly simple to keep the focus on what is truly important, the spiritual. When circumstances take on a life of their own, it is really, the, uh, it is really um, that something spiritual we're attributing that to them, right? When a circumstance takes on a life of its own, we're, we're almost giving a sacredness to it, right? And isn't that true when lights go down? I, I used to worship like that, and it kind of almost feels spiritual, right? It's kind of mystical. You're attributing spirituality to that circumstance, right? Paragraph 6 um, of chapter 22 actually expresses this principle. If you look in chapter 22, paragraph 6 of the Confession, neither prayer nor any other part of religious worship is now under the gospel tied unto or made more acceptable by any place in which it is performed or towards which it is directed, but God is to be worshipped everywhere in spirit and in truth. Now, when it says any place in which it is performed, that's really the old Roman Catholic idea of sacred ground, right? Um, we don't really, really have that anymore, um, but that was very common. Certain ground was sacred, such that you would, it was especially blasphemous to kill someone on sacred ground. There's a famous example, I think, of Robert the Bruce um, in Scotland. He invited his rival to a church, and it was like, well, he won't kill me there. These are, this is a safe ground. And he killed him in the church. Um, and it was, it was a ploy, because you would never think of doing that, because this is sacred. Well, what are you doing to that ground or that building? You're attributing something sacred or spiritual to it, right? Which there's really nothing given by the Word of God. It also says, or towards which it is directed, meaning that worship is directed towards perhaps a place or a direction. For example, a lot, if not most, of Roman Catholic churches, who knows which direction they face? Huh? They face east, 
right? Why? Well, the temple and the tabernacle faced, uh, faced east as well, and they see their churches as modern temples and, well, not tabernacles, but temples, so they also face east as well. That is more uh, acceptable to them. It's spiritual, which direction you worship. They would say, we're not doing something here right, because look at the, the way our building, it's kind of going north-ish. Uh, that's not really the spiritual direction. You really want to face east, okay? Our confession in Scripture says, yeah, there's nothing about that in the Word of God. In the Old Testament, yeah, and we see people praying towards Jerusalem, right? But not anymore. Our Jerusalem is heavenward. We pray towards heaven if we look in any direction, right? Rather, it says, but God is to be worshipped everywhere in spirit and in truth. What God truly desires in our worship is not which direction we are facing, nor that we are in a spiritual-looking building, nor that the lights are down and that there's a synthesizer on the keyboard. That's not truly spiritual to God. That's not what he's interested in. What he's actually interested in is the heart, the spirit of man. That's what he's looking in. The confession quotes a phrase from John 4. Turn with me there to John chapter 4. Jesus here is talking to the Samaritan woman when she says, uh, well, you Jews, you say God is to be worshipped in Jerusalem, but we say he's to be worshipped on Mount Gerizim, the Samaritans, right? John 4, verses 23 through 24. He says to her, The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, let me just have a little caveat here. When we speak of spiritual worship, we don't mean that there is no ceremony or ritual whatsoever. In fact, we have, uh, we have some sacraments before us, right? That's actually to be a Quaker. The Quakers said, well, we don't do any of that stuff. We don't do baptism. We don't have the Lord's Supper um, because, you know, we, we live in the Spirit, not in the flesh. And they're like, okay, well, you're just a Gnostic, right? Um, so we do have things like that. Furthermore, we don't mean that our bodies are not engaged in worship. Um, you actually can't fully partake of the worship of God without your body. Um, you can't be baptized into water if you don't have a body. You can't partake um, of the bread and the wine, things that are meant to be tasted and felt without a body. So we're not doing this to denigrate the body in any way. Nevertheless, the spiritual is primary. Why? Well, because you can partake of this, but if it's not done from the heart, you've actually just uh, drunk judgment upon yourself. Really, it comes from the heart. Everything else where the body attends is always to be joined with the heart and never without it. This principle of spiritual worship is seen all throughout the New Testament, and I'd say we see it primarily in two ways, um, namely when it's talking about worship. Um, first, when it's talking about what we would more consider an act of worship per se, right? Um, 
the emphasis is always on the spirit behind it or the spirituality of the act. So whether you're praying, it's praying from the heart. If you're singing, singing with the heart, right? That's often a big emphasis. If it's not necessarily on worship acts per se, um, but just the general worship we give God to our lives, um, it's not, the emphasis is not on ritual. It's on good deeds of actual holiness and righteousness, right? So, for example, Philippians 3.3, 3, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Ephesians 5, 18 through 20, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. All right? Colossians 3, 16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness, in your hearts to God, the heart. Hebrews 13, 15, which we'll look at today in, in our sermon, actually. Through Christ, let us then continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Um, there it's not, doesn't mention the heart, but it's, it's fruit, it's what's coming out of your heart, right? Or our Lord, in a very interesting passage, Matthew 15, 7 through 11 you hypocrites, he says. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person." In that context, they are worshiping in vain. Why? Well, clearly, they're only attending outwardly, right? They're, they're, not looking, um, they're only looking at what goes into the body, meaning what they're eating, unclean foods or things like that. They're not looking what comes out. What comes out comes from the heart. They worship falsely by, by not focusing on the heart. Even in the Old Testament... Although, as we've seen in our studies of Exodus and Leviticus, it's replete with instituted ceremony, yet even there, it was always the point that it was to point to spiritual worship. We see positive affirmations of this. For example, Psalm 51, 16, 19. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Interestingly, he goes on to say in the next verse, do good to Zion in your good pleasure, build up the walls of Jerusalem, then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, in whole burnt offerings, then bulls will be offered on your altar. So God was pleased to accept those in the Old Testament if they came from a contrite and broken heart, Right? Similarly, deeds of righteousness and compassion proceeding from a heart of faith rather than ceremony and ritual are what God is really interested in. Paul tells the Philippians in Philippians 4.18, I have received full payment and more, 
I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. James says famously in James 1, 26 through 27, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religious, uh, religion is worthless. You could be doing all kinds of outward things, but as soon as you snap at someone with your tongue, maybe not even using curse words, but just snapping, right? You've just invalidated your religion in, in, in a certain sense. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So typically, when the New Testament speaks of worship, yes, it does talk about baptism. It does talk about the Lord's Supper, but the emphasis is always on the Spirit, right? We should note here that the spirituality of our worship ultimately derives from the spiritual nature of God himself. Again, Jesus says in John 4, 2, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. It's grounded in the spiritual nature of God. Stephen Sharnock says, the right exercise of worship is founded upon and rises from the spirituality of God. All his perfections are grounded upon this. He could not be infinite, immutable, omniscient if he were a corporeal being. In our transactions with men, we deal not with them as mere animals, but as rational creatures. And we debase their natures if we treat them otherwise. And if we have not raised our apprehensions of, uh, have not raised apprehensions of God's spiritual nature, in our treating with him, but allow him only such frames as we think fit enough for men, we debase his spirituality to the littleness of our own being. We must therefore possess our wills with this, or we shall render him no better than a fleshly servant. In other words, when you're talking with other humans, you don't talk to them like dogs or animals, right? Like, come here, right? He says you insult them when you do that because that's not their nature. They are rational creatures. God has given them a mind and a will. Well, when you treat God merely like that, not as a spiritual being, you don't give him spiritual worship. You only give him outward fleshly. You also, as he says, debase his spirituality to the littleness of your own being, and you render him no better than a fleshly service, right? It has to come from the heart. So, as we consider elements of worship and ask what is appropriate, appropriate or not, we want to be sure that we keep the spiritual always at the fore, and simplicity guards this. By keeping worship simple, we remove the number of things that might distract from what is truly important. Our flesh loves outward ceremony. It thinks that stuff is great. It loves to accumulate layer upon layer of fleshly spiritual worship, not true worship. Stephen Sharnock continues, most men have no mind to busy their reason above the things of the senses. 
and are uh, naturally unwilling to raise them up to those things which are aligned to the spiritual nature of God. And therefore, the more spiritual any ordinance is, the more averse is the heart of man to it. There is a simplicity of the gospel away from which our minds are easily corrupted by things that please the senses, as Eve was by the curiosity of her eye and the thirst of her palate. From this principle hath sprung all the idolatry in the world. The Jews knew they had a God who had delivered them, but they would have a sensible God to go before them in the golden calf. And the papacy at this day is a witness of the truth of this natural corruption. That's our tendency. And by simplicity, we keep that in check, right? This principle then helps us to answer all kinds of very practical questions about worship and many other things. For example, if we were to have the money to buy our own building or or to make it, right, our own worship center, really to have it constructed, what should it look like? What should the architecture look like, this place where we're going to worship? Well, it should have many of the functions that buildings elsewhere have. It should be made well. It should be made up to code. You're going to need to be able to run electricity. You're going to need restrooms. It's going to need to be designed for our own purposes. We might have offices and storage rooms, bathrooms, nursery rooms, all things that are necessary, right? But what about decor? What about making it a really spiritual building? Andrew Willett talks about this in his Synopsis Papismi as a difference between the Reformed and Protestants and the Romanists on the other side. He says, The Romanists would have the temples and churches of Christians built in the most sumptuous and costly manner, yea, in beauty to exceed the palaces of princes, of silver, gold, silk, velvet, to be decked and adorned. They argue that the tabernacle of the Jews was of exceeding beauty, the curtains thereof of silk, the vessels, even to the snuffers for the lamps, were of gold. The priest's garment had a breastplate of gold set about with precious stones. Therefore, why should not the temples of Christians be in like sort adorned and set forth? As Isaiah prophesieth, that the glory of Lebanon shall come, the fir, the olive, the box tree, to beautify my sanctuary, which is literally to be understood, they say. So just as I've said before, the Old Testament prophets kind of paint New Testament realities with the palette of the Old Testament, right? Speaking of all that, well, he says the Romanists say, well, it talks about beautifying his sanctuary in the New Testament, so, so why not? They did it in the Old he responds, <laughs> his response made me laugh. I was like, whoa, calm down. Um, children, cover your, no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> he says, the Protestants argue that the churches of Christians and places of prayer ought decently to be kept, yea, and with suitable cost and seemly beauty to be built and repaired, and church vessels with other necessary fur- furniture to be of the best, not the worst sort, we do both commend it, and practice it, for so we learn by the example of our Savior that cast out the temple sellers of, uh, of doves and money changers and would not suffer them to carry vessels through it 
uh, that, the, that made the house of prayer not reverently regarded, right? So it should be reverently regarded. But yet it followeth not that such immoderate and excessive cost should be bestowed upon the walls of the churches and idols to garnish and beautify idolatry when poor people in the meantime are lacking. And then he says this, a matron ought to go about comely and decently apparelled though not tricked up with the jewels and ornaments of a harlot. (laughs) Amen. So when we approach such matters then, we ought to ask several questions, okay? Does any aspect of this potentially distract from what is truly important? So let's think about this practically. Let's think about pulpits, okay? Uh, here, I don't mean to, <laughs> uh, I don't know, maybe there's a sister church that has a very ornate uh, pulpit, and I'm not trying to go after them, okay? Um, I guess I'll say this is, these are my own convictions here. Um, but pulpits, even in Reformed churches, can sometimes be very ornately carved with spiritual symbols often, right? Crosses, doves, other kinds of things like that, uh, even a Bible itself, those are very common. At other times, maybe they're not, they don't have spiritual symbols on them, but they're just very ornate. Right? They look like, like a really nice, like nicely carved, uh, ornately decorated pulpit, right? What is the true significance and beauty of the pulpit, though? The word preached faithfully and powerfully. The gospel proclaimed. The true spiritual treasure of the pulpit is not its outward beauty, but the word as it goes forth from that. I'm not trying to condemn anyone per se, but we should ask, what do we truly treasure? The pulpit itself or the word that goes forth from that? And if we do, maybe don't have anything overly ornate, right? Just such as as Andrew Willett says, is comely and befitting, right? It doesn't have to look like a piece of junk, right? Have something nice, but something also that doesn't distract. Another potential question to ask, I think, is can something simpler than this suffice? Can something simpler than this suffice? Can a simple wooden pulpit, which is really no different from a respectable lectern or a podium that you might see somewhere else, Can that suffice for the basic uh, purpose of a pulpit? Well, yeah. Well, then maybe let's just do that, right? Pulpits aren't spiritual. They don't need crosses on them per se. And again, I'm not trying to go after anyone. You know, maybe someone... (laughs) Sometimes it scares me because I find out people in the association are listening to uh, my Sunday schools, and I'm like, oh, man, what am I saying, right? Um, I'm not trying to condemn anyone, but we could just ask questions. Can something simpler suffice? Well, maybe we should do that, right? Furthermore, the simplicity and spirituality of worship challenges us. Even us who say we are Reformed, we hold to the regulative principle of worship, we don't get away scot-free from the simplicity and spirituality of worship. Not at all. You know, I think for a lot of people when they come to a a Reformed church, perhaps the sentiment is, and and I think this is 
honestly, I think I experienced this the more I came into more Reformed churches. I was like, this is kind of boring. This is kind of boring, right? It's nice, the preaching's solid, but it's kind of boring, right? But what does that betray of the heart? What does that betray of what you truly think is exciting? If Christ is presented from the Word, ought not that to say this worship service is thrilling, right? Not boring. That shows you are actually finding entertainment in other things, right? You know, if you look at modern evangelical worship, it's not gaudy in a Roman sense, right? You don't, if, if you've ever been in a Roman uh, quote-unquote church, it's very gaudy. It's like, oh my gosh, it looks like you're in the, I don't know, Pirates of the Caribbean ride or something. It's just like, whoa, all this crazy stuff going on, right? It's, um, it's gaudy with gold and marble. It's that kind of a gaudiness. You don't find that in modern evangelical worship, really. It's either fun and entertaining or a false kind of mysticism and spirituality. There's a good book I would recommend to you. Uh, it's by a guy I went to seminary with, uh, Jonathan Cruz. We actually, he actually wrote some of the uh, hymns in our hymnal. Um, but it's titled, What Happens When We Worship? What Happens When You Worship? He says, the Reformed worship is often seen as too simple, and there are basically two solutions that people come up with today. He says, the traditionally Reformed approach seems so simple that surely something must change. The two main ways to address this are either to make worship far more exciting and entertaining or to make worship far more ethereal and mystical. As far as exciting and entertaining, you might see that with a lot of humor from the pulpit. And as you know, I'm not, uh, I don't, I'm not adverse to humor from the pulpit, right? I would hate if someone, I, this would crush me, honestly, if someone said, you should hear Pastor Ryan preach, he's so funny. That would actually be the biggest insult. I don't want people to come because I'm funny, right? So humor's not wrong, but that should not be why people coming, why, why people are coming. At other times, it's fun and entertaining um, outside of the worship service. It's all about serving, right? Um, you know, it's so funny. I've been to churches where I was a member, but because I served, I did so many other things that I never actually went into the worship service. Isn't that kind of crazy? I kind of justified it that way, like, well, I have a lot of things to do, and I'm Oh, I'm listening. You know, it's great. I can hear the sermon. Um, there's a lot of kind of fun entertainment in the busyness of programs or serving and things like that. He also says sometimes they try to make it ethereal and mystical. That is so true. I've been, I'm sure this is partly with the turning down of the lights, right? Where are we? We're no longer in Haltom City. Where are we? We're flying through space somewhere, Right? <laughs> The synthesizer's on, it's like, you like, and then maybe I've seen like huge screens, and it's like you're flying through space, or, or it's some kind of, it's very ethereal. It's really trying to be very spiritual. It's trying to recreate a spirit, what, what postmoderns think is spiritual, right? The, the kind of goosebumps spirituality, that's what they think is spiritual. Um, all of that, though, is false. It's not the real thing. 
It's not what God is truly looking forward to, right? This challenges us, challenges a lot of modern worship. It also challenges us, though, as those who are reformed, as I said. This challenges us because it doesn't let us get away with the fact that we don't have synthesizers, even though Elizabeth would love to have synthesizers, I'm sure, right? Jeremy, he's all about it. He's talked to me multiple times. Um, We don't turn the lights down. We don't do all kinds of things like that. The spirituality of worship doesn't give us a pass because we still have to offer the same heart worship that they are lacking. We may have very simple worship, but if it's not spiritual, because the heart is not joined with it, it is not acceptable to God. Sharnock says, let us try ourselves concerning the manner of our worship. We are now in the end of the world, the dregs of time, wherein the apostle predicts there may be much of a form, but little power of godliness. Therefore, it stands to search into ourselves whether it be not thus with us, whether there be as much reverence in our spirits as there may be devotion in our countenances and outward carriages. How, therefore, are our hearts prepared to worship? Is our diligence greater to put our hearts in an adoring posture than our bodies in decent garb? Are we content to have a muddy heart so long as uh, we have a dressed carcass? Do we take opportunities to excite and quicken our spirits to performance and cry aloud with David, Awake, awake, my glory? Are not our heart asleep when Christ knocks? In hearing the word of God, do we in hearing hang upon the lips of Christ? In prayer, do we take hold of God and will not let him go? In confession, do we rend our hearts and indict our souls before him with deep humility? Do we act more with a soaring love than a drooping fear? That's what God is after. That's true, pleasing worship to him. Not outward ceremony, not synthesizers, not gold on the wall, not a fancy pulpit, not things like that. What God wants from his church is the heart, offering up the heart to God. These things challenge us. Well, with that then... um, We could ask other practical questions. Uh, Perhaps if you have time later, we're running out of time. Any questions? Again, I'm not trying to condemn anyone who has a cross on their pulpit. I'm just, this chapter always gets you. All right, so, all right, you guys are.